In somewhat of a coincidence, a comment I had made on Facebook in August of 2014 suddenly reappeared in my feed on the missing persons page for Patty Atkins. What my post said was this. The technology exists to duplicate and multiply the DNA in the speck of blood they found on that guy's truck cover so that the sample won't be used up in one testing. You need to push police or seek out an independent lab that is able and willing to tell you whether or not that's Patty's blood. The Marysville Police Department has been sitting on this vital piece of evidence for way too long. Even DNA testing on the cat hairs is possible now and could potentially link Patty to that truck. This case frustrates me because even though you may never find out what happened to Patty, I think the police have enough evidence to work with. They've been sitting on it for years. See if the police department has commissioned a cold case unit, or even the state police. Somebody in law enforcement can help prove or disprove whether the suspect is a liar and a murderer. So when I saw my post suddenly reappear in my feed, I went to see if there had been any updates, and I found that her disappearance was recently featured on Crime Watch Daily. Which is really exciting because her case, even though it's gone cold, I feel like there's enough evidence, and even a person of interest, that this could be solved. As a part of my vacation series, seeing as I've spent the last two weeks talking about one of the biggest cases to come out of Ohio in recent times, and since Patty had gone missing from Ohio, I felt compelled to share her story with you here today on this bonus episode of California Dreaming, The Tale of Patty Atkins. In Marysville, Ohio, a town approximately 35 miles or 56 kilometers north of Columbus, 29-year-old Patty Atkins was employed at the Honda factory as an assembly line team leader. The factory was preparing for what they call shutdown, which is when the company closes for one week during the week of the 4th of July holiday. It's a week off that Patty had very much been looking forward to, as she had plans to go away with a co-worker she had a romantic involvement with for a couple of years by that time. I'll get more into the details of that co-worker in a little bit. Patty had been working at the Honda factory since she was 19 years old, and she was one of a handful of women who worked on the assembly line. She had been hoping for a promotion in the near future. She had 10 years under her belt, working her way from an entry-level position all the way up to team leader. She loved her job, and she was well-liked. She was excited at the prospect of moving up to the next level of management within the company. The future for her at Honda was looking very promising. At home, Patty was the youngest of five siblings, and also the single mom of one daughter, seven-year-old McKaylee. For Patty, her daughter was everything to her. Absolutely adored her, and McKaylee adored her mother. Things hadn't worked out between Patty and McKaylee's dad, but he was still very much in the picture and had regular visits. Patty worked very hard and very much wanted to build a stable future for herself and McKaylee. A part of her plans included a man that she had met at work, a co-worker whom she had been involved with for a couple of years. She had dreams to have a family with this man, having more children, where they might want to live, and Patty wasn't one to just let anyone into her life. Any of her free time would have been dedicated to spending time with her daughter. So this co-worker really had to have meant something special to Patty 
in order for her to decide to let him into her life. Oh, and one more thing. He was married. So on Friday, June 29th, Patty was getting ready for the week-long shutdown. She was super excited about some plans that she had had to go away to a cabin in Canada with her coworker. The reason she was so excited is because this would have been the first real alone time she would have been able to spend away with him. Away from work, away from kids, oh, and of course, away from his wife. Over the years Patty had been involved with this man, their relationship was quite clandestine. She did not want word getting out around the Honda plant, of course, that she was involved with a married co-worker. She did confide in a few close friends at Honda, one in particular, about their romance. And she did tell her sisters about him. But for the most part, it was meant to be kept as secretive as possible. So that Friday, she had been getting ready for her trip. In preparation for the getaway with her co-worker, Patty had taken her cats to be boarded while she was gone. Something that's going to lead to a very critical piece of evidence later on in the story. I kind of alluded to it in the beginning, but I'll explain more. Patty also took McKaylee to stay with her dad. The plan was for her to stay with him for the first half of the week and then spend the second half of the week with her aunt, Patty's sister. She also carpooled with her good friend from work, so her car would be at home in the garage and not left in the Honda parking lot when shutdown began. They were planning on leaving straight after work at midnight. All of this occurred that Friday, June 29th, prior to Patty's work shift at Honda, which was scheduled to begin at 3.30 that afternoon. Patty and her sister talked on the phone pretty much on a daily basis. So before she clocked into work, Patty called her one last time to let her know that after she was off, she and her coworker would be heading right out from work. So she wasn't sure when she would be able to call her again. Patty explained that she was anticipating there not being very good cell phone service in the area they were traveling to. So she was uncertain of if or when she would be able to call. So if they didn't talk, she would see her on Sunday. That was supposed to have been Sunday, July 8th, the day Patty was planning to be back from vacation. So the plan was for Patty and her coworker to clock out from their shifts at Honda. This was the final shift before shutdown, and it ended at midnight. So Patty had everything that she was going to take with her ready to go, but it really wasn't all that much she had packed, and I will explain more about that a little bit later also. They were going to take his pickup truck for the trip. And so Patty clocked out of her shift at the Marysville Honda plant at exactly 19 seconds after midnight, eager and ready for her romantic getaway. Patty made her way to the parking lot. She and her coworker had this all worked out. See, the thing was, he participated in a rideshare program with another coworker whom he needed to drop off first. Of course, he didn't want his rideshare companion or anyone at Honda to know about him and Patty. So he had a tonneau cover on the truck, which is a soft cover used to protect the cargo bed of his pickup truck. The idea was for Patty to go out to the truck first and climb in the bed of the truck and hide under the cover so the rideshare companion wouldn't see her. Then after he dropped off his rideshare, she could climb out and get into the cab of the truck and they would be on their way. Fast forward to Sunday, July 8th. McKaylee was at her aunt's house. 
and they were expecting Patty to arrive home around noon to pick her up. 12.30 comes, and there's still no Patty. Her sister tried calling her at home, but no answer. She just assumed they were running behind schedule. She was beginning to become concerned, but not overly concerned yet. It was just kind of out of character for Patty not to call if she was going to be late. She waited another half hour to try and call again, but still no answer. After another hour or so, she was redialing over and over again, trying to see if she could get an answer on Patty's phone, but nothing. Her mild concern was soon turning to worry, so she decided to try to call the home of the man Patty had gone away with. And when she did, his wife answered. Her sister pretended that she was a customer from his other job, a car repair shop that he was part owner of. At least that's what my understanding was. But he wasn't home yet either. Patty's sister knew about this man's wife. She knew he was married. Patty had confided in her about a man at work that she was interested in, that they had been talking and he was really funny had a good sense of humor, but he was married with children. Her sister tried talking to her about being in a relationship like this, being the other woman, questioning her as to why she would want to be caught up in something like this. But Patty really wasn't going to change what she was doing or how she was feeling. She told her sister that she felt like he was her soulmate, and they talked about anything and everything, and there wasn't anything she couldn't or wouldn't share with him. Patty also explained that based on everything he was saying about his marriage, that it was bad and they were on the verge of divorce. So that kept Patty wanting and waiting and hoping that in time, their marriage would dissolve and she would be able to step in and begin her life with him. Whether or not this co-worker's marriage was on the rocks or not, I don't know. You'd have to ask him. As far as I know, he's refused to speak to anyone about this case or Patty. I'm not going to name him publicly because nobody else is. Not law enforcement, not the media. But if you were to conduct a quick Google search, you'll be able to find his name fairly easily. But you didn't hear that from me. Well, okay, maybe you did. So anyway, Patty's sisters made it pretty clear that they did not like the fact that she was seeing a married man. They were afraid that he was just using her or leading her on, stringing her along, promising to divorce, and it never happens. And what about the fact that he was having an affair with Patty? What makes her think that he wasn't going to do it again? But Patty insisted that she and this man were meant to be together. Patty's sisters knew that she wasn't going to listen to them, that she was in love, and this was what she wanted. And what's more, his feelings for her were mutual. That her sisters didn't understand, they didn't know what he was like, so they can't judge. They decided to back off and let it play out on its own. A part of what Patty was doing to build this relationship with this man was helping him work towards walking away from his marriage with his auto repair business intact. It seemed that the business was co-owned by him and his wife's brother, or some kind of relative like that. And the fact that the business wasn't 100% his was holding him back from moving forward with the divorce. But 
if there was a way that he was able to buy his brother-in-law out of his shares, he would be able to divorce his wife and walk away with full ownership of it and not have to sell it. So I don't know if he asked Patty or if she offered, but she eventually began loaning him money over time in small increments, beginning about two years prior to her disappearance, with an understanding that he was to begin paying her back in July of 2001. Around the same time when she had began loaning him money, Patty had gone down to Miami, Florida to visit her sister. They were headed to visit the Hard Rock Cafe when Patty started talking about the future that she had been planning with this man. Patty revealed that he did own the business but was only part owner along with his wife's brother and he was going to buy him out of his share of ownership and the business would be owned solely by him. And as soon as that would happen, once the business was 100% in his name only, he was going to tell his wife that he wanted a divorce. Patty then went on to tell her sister that she had been helping him acquire sole ownership of the mechanic shop by loaning him a fairly large sum of money. Her logic was that the sooner he paid off the business, the sooner he could divorce his wife, and then the sooner they could begin their lives together. Her sister, of course, was skeptical of the plan. She knew that Patty had spent the last 10 years at Honda building up a savings, buying a home, investing in a 401k in order to ensure a secure future for herself and McKaylee. Patty insisted that they had a deal and he was supposed to pay her back within a certain time frame. When all loans were said and done, she had given this man a total of $90,000. So once again, resisting the temptation to criticize, her sister backed off and tried to trust Patty's judgment. They went to the Hard Rock Cafe and Patty purchased a souvenir t-shirt for her boyfriend. Her family was shocked at the amount of money she had been giving him, but they knew that her relationship with this man was much more important than the money, and in her mind, it was a step towards her happily ever after. She loved him. One of those kinds of loves that makes you do anything to make the other person happy. That was Patty. When her other sister back in Ohio found out about the money, she did not handle it as well as her sister in Florida. She peppered her with questions. How could you? Are you crazy? You work so hard to save all this money. How was he supposed to pay you back? Patty just kept shutting her down at every turn, reminding her sister that this was her plan for the future with this man and that he was going to pay it back and it was going to be little by little. Patty told her payments were starting in July of 2001. So back to July 8th. The day Patty was supposed to return home from her Canada trip and retrieve her daughter from her sister's house. It was already several hours past the time Patty was due back, and she had already even tried calling the man's house, posing as a potential client at his auto repair shop, and was told that he was going to be back in a little bit later on in the afternoon. Patty's sister was thinking that they just hadn't returned yet from their trip. She made a few more phone calls to some of Patty's friends, and that too was a dead end. No one had heard from her. About five hours past the time Patty was due home, her sister was becoming anxious and needed to find out where she was at. Her sister called the man's house again 
and this time he answered. She asked him where her sister was. He played dumb and asked her what she was talking about. She told him she was talking about her sister Patty, that she had gone on a week-long trip to Canada with him and she wanted to know where she was at. As she would describe it, he became very quiet on the other end of the line and his demeanor over the phone seemed to shift as soon as she brought up the Canada trip. Again, he tried to play dumb as if he didn't know who or what she was talking about, asking her, Oh, are you talking about Patty? You mean from Honda? Portraying his knowledge of her as being limited to someone he knew from work, nothing more than that. She said yes, from Honda. To her, he became very nervous on the phone, not really able to articulate as smoothly as he had when they first got on the phone. And finally, he just said he had no idea what she was talking about. She demanded to know where her sister was and what he did with her, that she knew that she was going on this trip to Canada with him. She wanted answers and that she couldn't believe that he was telling her that he didn't know her sister. She knew he knew her, but she got no answers from him. And then panic set in. So now that this man has flat out denied knowing her sister, she started thinking about the trip to Canada, all the concerns that she had had about it, the way she had to sneak into the bed of that truck, how there wouldn't be any phone contact. All of those red flags her sister had been worried about has now led to this. Patty was gone. But there were more details about the trip Patty had shared with her that worried her a lot and made her think that something just wasn't right about it. Patty told her that there would be no cell service, that the place was really remote. Her sister did not like the fact that she would not be hearing from Patty for more than a week. It gave her a bad feeling. It concerned her the way that she had to go about things hiding in the truck as they left Honda, even though Patty had an explanation for it. To her, it was weird. Also, Patty had told her sisters and her friend that she wasn't bringing any luggage or any clothes and that they were going to go shopping and buy all new stuff. They were skeptical of this plan as well because this cabin in Canada was supposedly in a super remote place. Where were they supposed to go shopping for clothes? So if you're thinking what I'm thinking, in his mind, asking her not to bring luggage means one less thing for him to have to dispose of, right? One less piece of damning evidence. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. And in hindsight, Patty's sisters were probably upset that they hadn't done more to try and intervene. But from the way they described Patty, she wouldn't have listened. She was so very much looking forward to this getaway, nothing would have stopped her. At approximately 7 p.m. on July 8, 2001, Patty Atkins was reported missing. Unable to sleep that night, Patty's sister decided to try and call this man again around 3 in the morning. She managed to get the wife on the phone and gave her all the details of everything she knew. That she was Patty's sister, as it seemed that the wife was aware that her husband had a co-worker named Patty. That Patty had been involved in a relationship with her husband. That Patty had loaned him a large sum of money. They were supposed to have been on a week-long trip to a cabin in Canada. But Patty had not come back home when she was supposed to have. 
The wife actually talked to Patty's sister for about 15 minutes before she handed the phone over to her husband. He, again, kept denying all of the accusations that she was making, questioning her as to what makes her think she knows anything about him and what makes her think that he knows Patty that well. She explained to him all of the things that she knew about their relationship, recounting to him things that Patty had related to her, everything, his business, his wife, his kids, gifts that she had given to him. And he kept asking her questions too, likely in an attempt to figure out how much she actually knew. She had been so distraught that afternoon and into the evening until the time she got him back on the phone that it really hadn't dawned on her that she had had this lengthy conversation with this guy and his wife, thinking that if it were her, she would have hung up almost immediately. I think I would have too if I had received a 3 a.m. call with all of these allegations. But they stayed on the line, asking questions. Like I said, probably trying to figure out what she knew. So now that the man is denying having anything to do with Patty, beyond just being a co-worker, denied being romantically involved, denied borrowing money, denied going to Canada, all of that, Patty's family was going to have to rely on law enforcement to investigate her disappearance and hopefully find some way to disprove this man's claims and denials. They would need to make a connection between him and Patty, and it had to be more than just their word against his. Once the missing persons report was filed, detectives from the Union County Sheriff's Department were assigned to the case right away. Patty's home, car, and computer was searched, but there didn't seem to be any indication that anything nefarious had occurred there. Nothing seemed out of place. The house was locked up as it should have been when she had left for vacation, and her car was parked in the garage. They did find something kind of strange in her home, however, that raised some questions. Money bands. $100 bill money bands. Presumably from all the money she had given to this man. And if this was all that was left of the money that she had given to him, that meant the transactions happened all in cash, and there would likely be no paper trail to be found. Patty had explained that there couldn't be any records of the loans because of his wife, and if she were to find out, she could take half of everything, so it had to be all in cash. No IOUs, no promissory notes, none of that. She loaned him this $90,000 in cash, and the money bands were sitting in her house. Detectives took her computer and some financial records in order for them to be examined by a forensic accountant to see what had been going on with Patty's finances. It would later be determined that Patty had pretty much drained all of her financial resources to the tune of $90,000, including taking out a second mortgage on her home, cashing out her 401k, cashing in some stocks, and taking cash advances out on credit cards. However, as far as the man she had said she had been loaning the money to, there was no trace of that amount of money having flowed through any of his accounts. Detectives also spoke to a number of people who worked with Patty at the Honda factory to see if they could glean any information about what may have happened to her. What stood out to those that Patty was in charge of supervising was that she had spoken to them at the beginning of the shift that she needed to leave at midnight so everything had to be ready and cleaned up for shutdown time. They could not stay any later, no overtime. Midnight was it. The reason this was different was because Patty was never the first to leave. She was always last. 
So this indicated to investigators that she did indeed have a plan in mind that required her to make sure she left exactly at midnight. And according to time clock records, she was one of the first to clock out. She went up the stairs, out the door, and was never seen again. Also in their talks with other Honda associates, they confirmed that they had seen Patty talking to this married co-worker. Although they went to great lengths to ensure that they keep their relationship under wraps, she did confide in one co-worker who had become one of her best friends. And all of the things that Patty had told her sister, she had told this person as well. Aside from her, no one really thought much of the interactions Patty had with this man as she talked to a lot of people as a team leader. It was part of her job. Patty's best friend knew many more details about her and the married co-worker. She told investigators that they kept everything as quiet as possible because he was married, that they had only hung out a couple of times outside of work as far as she knew, that the relationship had not turned sexual, but if it had, it was very, very rare. She related the excitement Patty had expressed over this trip to Canada because this was going to be their first time they were going to spend an extended amount of time away from work together. The fact that he was going to spend a week with her, away from his wife and kids, meant that he was truly going to follow through on his promises to leave his wife and be with her. It meant a great deal to Patty, and her friend's statements were corroborated by Patty's sisters, who related the same information to the detectives. They were the only people Patty told about the trip, and all the weird details of how they were going about it. Talking to her sisters and her friends separately, detectives found their stories matched almost identically. Before long, investigators got a lead. They were told the story of how Patty was supposed to get into the bed of the truck with that tonneau cover on it, which was a service vehicle from his mechanic shop, and that she was to stay in there until he dropped off his rideshare buddy, who purportedly had no inclination that she was back there. And because everyone knew what Patty was up to and had given detectives matching stories, the feeling was that their claims were credible. Once they understood the amounts of money involved, as the detective put it, it made the hair stand up on the back of his neck. It was a bad, sinking feeling. They had floated the idea that maybe Patty had run off voluntarily, but with everything that had been going on in her life, having a good job for more than a decade, a big promotion on the horizon, all the money that she had been loaning this man, and all the plans that she had talked about, and especially her daughter. Detectives didn't believe that she would up and leave on her own. So with this information, they wanted to question this man, and they wanted to search his home, his car, and his business. What they were looking for was to identify some key evidence Patty's friends and family had told them about, namely that Hard Rock Cafe Miami t-shirt she had given to him. They conducted the search of his home on July 13, 2001, a search which he consented to. So a couple of detectives stayed at the home with his wife to search it, while a couple of others headed over to the business to search that property, also with his consent. His wife was questioned, but it didn't appear that she had any idea about what, if anything, was going on between her husband and Patty. She claimed that an affair was impossible because all he did was go to work and come home. However, this doesn't really mean much 
to me anyways because it was known that they did not see each other outside of work but a handful of times. Patty knew he was married, thought that they were divorcing, and was giving him the time and space to work it out, or so she thought. The wife also informed detectives that the night Patty disappeared, her husband was home, arriving from work around 2.30 in the morning. And what's more, she stated that he was home all week, not in Canada as Patty's family and friends had been claiming. How I see it, this doesn't mean much either in the way of an alibi, mainly because if he had done something to Patty that night and gotten rid of her body, of course he wasn't going to go to Canada or anywhere else for that matter. From what I can see, he had no intentions of a week-long getaway during shutdown. It was all one big lie he perpetrated in order to manipulate Patty into going someplace remote to do who knows what. In looking through the home, they did come across the Hard Rock Cafe t-shirt Patty's sister had witnessed her purchase on the trip to Miami. There it was, in his drawer. And what did the wife have to say about it? That she had no idea where the shirt came from. And to that I say, of course she didn't. It did bring a canine, and it did indicate on a spot where some concrete had recently been poured, but when it was dug up, nothing was found. Meanwhile, over at the auto repair shop, detectives were questioning the man about his relationship with Patty, and he continued to just deny, deny, deny. He denied any type of romantic relationship. He denied having any plans to go to Canada. He denied borrowing any money from Patty. And he denied having any plans to divorce his wife. The story he told detectives was very different than the story Patty had told her friends and sisters. He claims that when he and his carpool buddy left Honda that night, they stopped at Burger King for some food. He dropped the friend off and went home. And the friend, whom detectives also questioned, confirmed the story. And his wife, of course, confirmed the story that he was not in Canada all week. He claimed that he was busy doing projects around the house and that later in the week he went fishing with some friends. But it was a local fishing trip, no place far. In an effort to try and find a place to begin to search for Patty, detectives asked him if he knew of or had ever gone to stay in any cabins in Canada. But there was just more denials. So essentially, if he had done something to Patty or had dumped her somewhere... It could have been anywhere. But there's a couple of issues with this man's statement. Firstly, he did not do well when investigators hooked him up to the polygraph. They won't say that he failed, but in their words, he was deceptive. And secondly, when he told his Burger King story, he said that they were in line for 45 minutes. Now mind you, this was purportedly sometime after midnight. Is there a 45-minute wait at any given Burger King at that time of night? Possibly, I suppose. But detectives did follow up on the story and paid a visit to the Burger King that he had said he'd gone to. They wanted to find out how busy the place was during the time their person of interest said he was there waiting in line for 45 minutes. And according to the manager, on that night, between the hours of midnight and 1.30 in the morning, the store earned a whole $18. What is maybe three or four customers? If that, is that 45 minutes worth of business? 
you be the judge. So what does this mean in terms of this man's alibi? I'll tell you what it means. He doesn't have one. Because like I said, according to his wife, he arrived home at 2.30 in the morning. So where was he? I guess we'd have to ask him and he's not talking. But what this does tell me is that Patty isn't more than an hour away, wherever he left her. How heart-wrenching is that? Thinking that she's on this romantic vacation with the love of her life, and somehow he came home, and she's never seen again. I don't know if it's more heartbreaking or more infuriating, honestly. During their questioning, they asked him about the gifts that Patty had given to him. He first denied receiving any gifts. But later on, he changed his story and said that he had received a birthday card from her. He said he was afraid that if his wife saw it, that she might get jealous, so he ripped it up. Okay, this is all kinds of nonsense. If he had nothing to do with Patty, and she's just a random co-worker, what the heck is she doing giving him a birthday card? I mean, according to investigators, there were approximately 4,000 employees at that plant. Is she giving everyone cards? I doubt it. It makes you think that he was more important to her than just some random coworker. I could see a group of the work crew getting together to sign a birthday card for one person, but no, this stinks. While they were there at the man's auto repair business, they could see his pickup truck that Patty's friend and sister had claimed that she had climbed in the back under that tonneau cover to hide. But they noticed the cover had been taken off. The equipment to attach to the truck bed was still there, but the cover was not. They questioned him about it, and he told them that it was in a storage loft. Detectives went up there and found it, rolled up in the corner. When they questioned him about it, he said that he had ordered it the week prior to shutdown. He picked it up that Friday the 29th, installed it, and had intended to use it to protect his fishing equipment when he had gone on that trip. He took it off a week later and hadn't used it since so they took it for processing. And what they found on it would be very interesting. In examining the tonneau cover, they found two very small pieces of evidence, some cat hairs and a tiny, tiny speck of blood. Remember this case took place in 2001, so DNA testing was a viable way of identifying these items and linking them to someone or something and the cat hair was tested, and it was found to be a DNA match to Patty's cat. Now, what does this all mean? Well, to me, it means the person of interest is lying. How did her cat hair end up on his pickup truck bed cover? He claims that he barely knew her. He said they had no plans to go to Canada, yet somehow her cat hair ended up attached to his truck cover, and that cat hair was found on the bottom of it. How was this to be explained? How did it get there? By magic? No. The logical answer is the one that makes the most sense. It's the story that everyone told the detectives. That Patty got into the bed of that truck to hide and left behind proof that she did. As for the spot of blood, at the time of Patty's disappearance, DNA testing had not advanced enough that would have allowed them to test the sample and for it to not all have been destroyed. They had been waiting for technology to advance enough before testing, and from what I could understand, they have analyzed the blood, but they aren't revealing what they found. 
And these are the two things I was talking about that could have potentially linked Patty to this man. The things that were so frustrating to me when I wrote that post almost four years ago. Patty has since been declared dead. And her daughter now, 23, is studying to earn her PhD in behavioral neuroscience. But the family is still holding on to hope that they're going to someday be able to bring Patty home as well as bring the person responsible for this to justice. For detectives, this is not a missing persons case. It's a homicide case, and they're keeping much of their investigation close to the vest. The evidence is compelling, and it's convincing. I'm convinced. But it's circumstantial. The relationship, the loans, the Hard Rock Cafe t-shirt, the cat hair, the failed polygraph, the random purchasing of that tunnel cover, not having an alibi for the time between leaving work on that Friday at midnight and not coming home until 2.30. Sadly, the feeling is amongst investigators that they're only going to have one chance to try this man. And as much as the evidence is pointing directly to him, it just isn't quite enough. What they don't have is proof that Patty is actually dead. Hopefully, someday, somebody stumbles upon what's left of her. And then, maybe, the case can be brought against him. The upside is that detectives and her family, nobody has given up on Patty. If you have any information regarding the disappearance of Patty Atkins, please call the Maryville Police Department at area code 937-645-7300. Thank you for joining me for this special bonus episode of California Dreaming. I'm keeping my fingers crossed that some answers can be found soon for Patty's loved ones. 17 years is long enough. And until next time, sweet dreams.